Good morning, everybody. Happy Father's Day to the dads in the room. May you get the very thing you, your heart desires today, which I'm guessing is just a nap this afternoon. It's not hard to please fathers on Father's Day. Just, you know, give them a quiet room for 60 to 90 minutes today. That's all I'm asking on behalf of every father in the room. This is a really exciting Sunday, and you know, praying for the Tanzania team that's about to leave, um, as you'll see in a second, is incredibly appropriate for today. This is the 70th week of our Matthew series. Yeah, and it's also the final one. Um, and I don't know about you, um, I have mixed feelings even about the end of Matthew. I have so enjoyed our time in this book. And we started Matthew right after all the pandemic craziness, um, and it was very conscious. It was a decision that, hey, we want to spend, you know, a whole year just with Jesus. But then we started breaking the book down and realized, like, okay, maybe it's like we're going to spend a whole year and a half with Jesus, which is what ended up happening, especially when you add some of the kind of little mini-series that we injected into the middle of that. And so today, we are concluding Matthew's gospel with the final words of the book, which are words from the mouth of Jesus. And what's incredible about this moment in Matthew's gospel is it's not just the conclusion of the book, it's also very intentionally the point in the book where Jesus brings us directly into the story. And so I hope you see it that way today as we close. If you were here last week, you know that we've kind of spent the final section of Matthew's gospel looking at the death and resurrection of Jesus. Last week, we saw Jesus resurrected. The women go to pay their respects to his body and find an empty tomb and an angel saying that he is risen, just as he said. And when they encounter Jesus, Jesus tells them, go tell my brothers to go meet me in Galilee. And so today we pick up the story at the very end with the disciples meeting Jesus in Galilee. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Because of Judas, it's gone from 12 to 11 disciples. And something might strike you as kind of odd right away. So like you notice, first of all, Jesus said, tell them to meet me in Galilee. They've done that. But then Matthew includes the fact that some of them doubt. And I love that, first of all, just because it's an example of the fact that the New Testament authors are incredibly honest. I mean, Matthew himself is one of these 11 guys. And he doesn't say like, and the disciples showed up bravely, ready to roll. They also looked super buff at the time, I want to, I want to mention. Like, it's not, he, he's not concerned with making them look good. There's one character who Matthew is always concerned with making look good, right? And so he includes the fact that there is some doubt. Now, one thing that kind of helps understand this is um, the Greek word that's translated doubt has a bigger range than the English word doubt does. So doubt for us always means like an intellectual uncertainty, like you're not sure if you believe something intellectually. But doubt, the, the Greek word that's being translated there, also includes the idea of hesitation or wavering. And, and that kind of makes some sense, right? You're like, this guy was just dead a few days ago, right? And so now here he is showing up, and it says some of them doubt. Some of them worship, some of them doubt. A another possibility here is it's possible, and many scholars argue for this, that even though Matthew is only specifically mentioning the 11 disciples, that this might have been a larger group who came to meet Jesus on this day. One of the reasons for that is that Paul later in one of his letters will say that Jesus appeared to over 500 people at one time. So it's, it's hard to make that argument just from the text, but it's possible there's more than just the 11 there. But honestly, just from the accounts we get in other gospels, it's not hard to imagine that some of the 11 disciples have some hesitation. I mean, in John's gospel, we see one disciple who is called Doubting Thomas, right? Because of his doubt until he actually sees Jesus himself. So they show up, they worship, but some doubt. 
And what's really cool about this is Jesus doesn't, you've seen this over and over in Matthew, Jesus doesn't arrive and say, all right, doubters, leave. I only want the worshipers here. If you have hesitation, get out of here. But Jesus arrives to this group and gives all of them the same commission. And it's a commission that we call the Great Commission, the commission Jesus is giving to the disciples and by extension to you and me. And here it is, the final words of Matthew's gospel. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, a little bit later, we're going to go through this in a little more detail. But the thing I want you to notice right off the bat, before we do some of the kind of background to understand what Jesus is doing here, the actual content of the Great Commission is incredibly straightforward. It's not complicated. A lot of the time you read stuff Paul writes in the New Testament, stuff John writes in the New Testament, you'll be like, man, I wish there was like a footnote here explaining exactly what he meant. There's tons of places where you're like, Paul, I need a little more detail. I don't know quite what you mean. Jesus is incredibly straightforward when he tells the church what he wants them to do. And so the challenge of the Great Commission for you and for me is not do we understand it, it's are we going to obey it. That's the question for today. It's not do you get it, it's will you do it? Because Jesus said this 2,000 years ago, and the commission is for the church. And so I can't tell you how many times I've heard, and I've heard it over and over again, because I'm a teaching pastor here, but I'm also the missions pastor here. And Tammy, our, our, our mission director, will tell you the same thing. And forgive yourself if you're one of the people who said this to me, because I'm sure there's some of you in the room. I can't tell you how many times I have been told, oh, I'm not, I just know I'm not called to mission. I'm not called to missions work. I'm really glad there are people who are called to that, but that's not me. And so at the outset of today's sermon, I want to tell you, I have a 100% guaranteed way to tell if you're called to missions or not. Do you know what it is? It's just ask if you're a Christian. Because if you are, then you're called to missions. Congratulations. Now, that does not mean that you have to pack your bags and move to Africa or South America or something tomorrow. The mission of God, as we'll see today, is not just for special elite missionaries who are called to that particular work. It's for everyone. And the way that we can see that and understand it, I'm convinced, and it's what we're going to spend most of our time today doing, is to see that, that what Jesus is doing here and what Jesus is commanding here is not some new, unique idea that just suddenly pops up at the end of Matthew. It's not like Jesus has this one special thing just for the 11 disciples or just for the first century or just for some super Christians. But what he's actually doing is speaking and commanding directly within the stream of God's purpose and God's desire from the very beginning. And so if you're a regular attender here, you won't be surprised at all by this because we do this all the time. But to understand the Great Commission, we have to go all the way back to page one of the Bible. And what we're going to do is kind of like a a really brief fly-through of some key texts to show you that God's purpose that you see being commanded out from the Great Commission has been there from the very beginning. So, the very beginning, Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now this is literally and figuratively the crowning moment in the account of God creating the world. 
God has just created everything, and the kind of final special act of creation is the creation of humanity made in God's image. We've talked about this several times throughout the series, so I won't belabor the point, but humanity is something special. They're made from the dirt, the text says in the very next chapter, and yet they have the breath of heaven put into them by God. So they're unique among the other created creatures. And God declares right here on page one of the Bible that his intention is that they, humanity, would have dominion over the rest of the things he's created. So here's the point. Right on page one of the Bible, God is making it crystal clear that his desire is to rule the creation that he has made through human beings. That's the goal. That's the plan. Human beings have delegated authority from God, and it is their job to rule over creation in his name and in his image. And so here's the thing. How well does that go? It's not a hard question, I promise. No tricks. What happens two pages later, right? Genesis chapter 3 shows the human beings, Adam and Eve, rebelling against God. And as a result of that, all of creation is plunged into chaos and disorder. We call that the fall. We're still experiencing the effects of it to this day. And, And to understand why it's like that, you have to start with Genesis 1, 27. Why is it that when humanity sins there's not just consequences for them. There's consequences for everything in creation because it was their job to have dominion over it. So already, two pages after this, the mistakes that humans make affect everything over which they were placed in authority. Does that make sense so far? So God's showing you, page one, the plan is rule over creation through human image bearers. Of course, as I said, they fail, and so the rest of the story of Scripture is the story of God working to reconcile and redeem that creation. And when he does it, he does it always through human beings. Let's fast forward to Genesis chapter 12. This is God making his first kind of direct move in the task of reconciling the broken creation and redeeming that which he's made. And he calls a man named Abram. His name's later going to be changed to Abraham. And he makes him this promise. It's very famous. It's called the Abrahamic covenant or the Abrahamic promise. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, All the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram is a very weird person for God to pick for this task. That's kind of what God always does. Abram is an old man, an old wife. They've been unable to have children for their entire life. And he goes to that person, not somebody with a whole bunch of kids and grandkids. He goes to the people who can't have children and he says, you are the ones through whom I'm going to create an entire nation. And he says, that nation, the purpose of the nation that comes from you is going to be to bless all the other nations of the world. So there's this phrase you may have heard if you've been around Christianity a long time, and it's the idea that Abraham and his family are blessed to be a blessing. They're blessed in order to bless. It's an incredibly important pattern that you're going to see recur over and over again in the scripture. It's not just, Abraham, I like you more than everybody else, so I'm going to give you blessings, and I want you to enjoy those blessings and keep them all for yourself and have a really good time with them. The purpose in the Abrahamic promise is I'm going to bless every nation, the entire world. The vision of God is global, but he says, you are going to be the conduit through whom I bless all the nations. And so the promise is believed by Abraham and it comes true. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. 
Jacob's name is changed to Israel. He has 12 sons. We're doing a whole lot of years right now, just in one sentence. Israel has 12 sons. They become the 12 tribal heads of Israel, and they go into Egypt, and in Egypt, they become a mighty nation. Pharaoh enslaves that nation, and God, in the Exodus event, rescues them out of slavery. And after God has rescued them out of slavery, he's establishing them as a nation. And the way he's going to do that is by giving them this law. You know the law because it's where the Ten Commandments happen. And then after that, it's the part in your reading plan every year when you have a really hard time sticking with it. Because God starts giving all of these very specific instructions. And there's something that happens right before the giving of the law that's super easy to miss. And it's so important. God is giving like the purpose statement behind why he's forming the nation of Israel. And if you are paying attention as you read the whole story, you'll see how it goes all the way back to Genesis 1, all the way back to Genesis 12. This is God's purpose statement when he gives the law. He says, Now therefore, if you, speaking to the nation of Israel, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. Now, many evangelical Christians, we think that God's purpose with Israel is just that, and we cut off the rest of the verse. You're going to be my treasured possession. I like you better than everybody else. But look at the rest of what he says. You'll be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does he mean by a kingdom of priests? So what does a priest do? A priest is someone who mediates between God and other people. It's what the priests of Israel do. It's even what the priests of other religions do. Their job is to mediate between God and other people. And so when God says, Israel, you're going to be an entire nation of priests, an entire kingdom, all of priests, the point he's making is that Israel is supposed to do globally and internationally what individual priests did for Israel. They're going to mediate between God and the rest of the nations. And if you follow through and keep reading the law with this lens on, you, you see over and over again the whole purpose of Israel is that they will represent what God is like to the rest of the nations so that those nations will be drawn to Israel and as a result will come to know the one true God. That's what it means to be a kingdom of priests. So what God tells him right at the beginning is, listen, if you keep the law, you know what's going to happen? You're going to be a kingdom of priests. Now, of course, just like Adam and Eve, they don't necessarily do the best job at that. But there's all these other clues, and I can show you verse after verse after verse, but there's one that, that always stands out to me, and it's because it it comes in a book of the Bible that's not really known for being like the place you go when you want to talk about God loving all the nations. It's in the book of Joshua. But Joshua, he's the ruler who leads Israel after Moses dies. And at the very beginning of his leading of Israel, God dries up a section of the Jordan River so that the people of Israel can walk across on dry land. What's that supposed to remind you of? You guys are all whispering the Red Sea in the creepiest voice possible. The Red Sea. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's the exact same miracle. And God, God's doing that on purpose. He's saying, this is the new Moses. We're going into the promised land. So he, he shows that Joshua kind of has his cosign as the leader of Israel. So they go through, but then when God says the reason why he dried up the Jordan, he says this. He says he did that so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Now, in context... Joshua 4 happens right after this incredible story where Joshua sends spies into the city of Jericho. They encounter a woman in there named Rahab. Rahab is not, she's not only not an Israelite, she is a Canaanite and she is a prostitute and she lives in the city of Jericho. 
She's as not Israel as someone can possibly be. But when the spies encounter her, she tells them, hey, listen, I've heard about all the stuff that your God did in Egypt, and I would like to switch teams. Can I join Israel? And you know what the spies say? Yes. So you, the book of Joshua starts with this incredible example of like the least Israel person possible. All she has to do is say, I'm declaring my loyalty is, is for your God, Yahweh. And they go, then you're in. And then right after that, you have God himself saying, I'm doing this so that the people of earth will know that Yahweh, that's what Lord in all caps means, is mighty. Even there at the beginning of the nation of Israel, you see that purpose over and over again. Now fast forward 500 years. In 1 Chronicles 16, David, who is the the first king to kind of unite all 12 tribes of Israel together. And so David has united the tribes of Israel He is moving into the city of Jerusalem. And in chapter 16 specifically, he's moving the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. So there's this big celebration because the the special place of the presence of God is coming into Jerusalem. And David leads the people in this song. One of the things he says in that song is this. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. See, David understands what the purpose of Israel is because he understands what the offspring of Abraham is for and he understands what the job of Adam was. He goes, Israel's coming together and what's the result? God's glory is going to be declared among all the nations. Now again, you can add to this the fact that God promises David that one of his offspring, someone in his lineage, is going to rule forever. He's going to have an eternal kingdom. So David has all this vision together in his head, but what he sees is God wants the nations. God wants the nations. And if you're not sure about that, all you have to do is read the book of Psalms because this is Israel's hymn book, the thing that kind of like shapes their identity as they sing these songs week after week. And a huge percentage of them are written by David. And they'll say things like this, be still and know that I am God. Very famous verse, but most of us don't know the very next part. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Not just I will be exalted in Israel, but all the nations. I'm telling you, if you read the Psalms and you have eyes to see God's purpose for the entire world, you will see literally dozens if not hundreds of verses like that one. Here's one more. It's from Psalm 22. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations, do you hear the Abrahamic language? Through your family, all the families will be blessed. All the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. See the language of Abrahamic covenant. This family is going to bless all the families. All the families of the nations will one day turn and worship God. That's the purpose from the beginning all throughout the entire story. Now you see the same pattern recur over and over again in the prophets as well. These are these men who are called to deliver God's message to God's people. And one of the things that happens over and over again is they will say, God desires that the nations would know his power or would see his goodness. Now we, again, like the Psalms, we could do tons of examples of this. I just want to show you a couple particularly dramatic ones. This is Isaiah 49.6. And this is from a section of Isaiah known as the Servant Songs. And they're called that because they're these poetic oracles where Isaiah, God is speaking through Isaiah, and he's talking about this servant who's going to come and accomplish the rescue and salvation of Israel. 
And so it's, it's very, very clearly portraying Jesus, even though these are written hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. And this is one of the things that's said in there. And again, this is, if you're not aware of this theme all throughout the Old Testament, this can seem surprising. God says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. It's two different ways of saying the same thing. It's not enough for you just to raise up Israel. That's too light. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. What's the Messiah going to do? What's the special servant of God going to do? He's not just going to rescue Israel. That was said hundreds of years before Jesus is even born. He's going to be a light for all the nations. Now, it's hard to imagine anything more dramatic than that, but there actually is one more dramatic than that, in my opinion. And it comes in the book of Daniel. Daniel's a book that, uh, it's super weird because it's like two different halves that are completely different books, they feel like. So in the first seven chapters of Daniel, you have like, all the stories you know from Sunday school, if you went to Sunday school growing up. So that's where like, you know, the fiery furnace happens and where Daniel and the lion's den happens. And so if you're reading through Daniel for the first time, you're like, oh, I've I've heard a bunch of these stories. Then all of a sudden Daniel 7 hits and it's like crazy nightmare bizarre town where all of a sudden there's like monsters crawling out of the ocean and angels are telling Daniel riddles. And you're like, "I, I want like the Daniel and the lion's den part back again. But during that section, that strange section of visions, Daniel gets this vision. Look at how incredible this is. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. A few things that need clarification here. When you and I, especially those of us who are Christians, when we hear son of man, we think of Jesus right away. Because later, hundreds of years later, Jesus is going to adopt that title. But at this point in history, it doesn't mean that. Son of man just means human. A son of man is just a human being. It's just a way to say, this is a son of a human, just like the son of a prophet is a prophet. So son of man just means, all it means is human being. So Daniel says, in the night I saw visions and I saw a human. But there's already something weird happening because the human is riding on the clouds. And if you know the Old Testament, you know there's only one being who rides the clouds in the Psalms and the prophets, and that's God. So cloud riding is, is God's job. And so already there's something strange happening. Daniel says, I saw a human riding the clouds and and the clouds take him before the Ancient of Days, which is a title that Daniel is using for God at this point. So this human is presented before God. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, Matthew was very aware of this prophecy. And what you see here is this collapsing together, this compression of all of these different parts of Scripture that we've just briefly been looking at. I mean, look at the very beginning. A human is given dominion. What's that supposed to make you think of? Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Human beings are given dominion over God's creation. And what's going to happen? All peoples, nations, and languages. This is Abrahamic language. That all the nations come to the one nation. His dominion is everlasting. He has an everlasting eternal kingdom. That's meant to make you think of the son of David who's promised to have a kingdom that will never have an end. So Daniel sees in this vision, there's a human being who is somehow at the center point of all these different images that have been traced through the entire Bible story up until this point. What's the point? Why are we doing this? Why are we doing this rapid tour through the Old Testament? Because when Jesus says, 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go in light of that and make disciples of all nations. He is not introducing some new idea to the biblical story. He's actually saying, I am the one who all of that stuff is about. This is the Son of Man coming and claiming dominion over everything. When Jesus says he's got all authority in heaven and on earth, you're supposed to think, Adam, the human being is ruling over creation the way he was always supposed to. You're supposed to think offspring of Abraham. He wants all the families, all the nations of earth to be gathered in. You're supposed to think the son of David who has the eternal kingdom that's without end. You're supposed to think of the servant who lifts up, what? All the nations to the ends of the earth. And of course, the son of man in Daniel 7. Jesus says, I have all the authority. He's saying, that's me. God is ruling creation through a human being exactly like he always wanted to, always planned to. The thing that's a twist is that this human being happens to also be God himself. Now that's pretty cool in my opinion. But what's even cooler, or scarier maybe, is that he says, and in light of all that, I've got a job for you. So Jesus does not say, hey, I've got all authority in heaven and on earth. I am the fulfillment of this purpose of God to rule and reign through a human. So watch this, everybody. Sit down, I got this. No, the means through which he wants to work is the same as Genesis 1, through human beings. Because I've got all authority, and so I'm sending you. And so again, like I said at the beginning, if you're a Christian, the question is not, am I called to mission? The question is, how is God calling me to mission? What is my mission in order to pursue this? And so now we're ready to really briefly walk through the Great Commission. And I, I really mean briefly, because like I said at the beginning, there's not a whole lot here that's like ambiguous or confusing or that needs a ton of explanation. You just have to decide whether or not you're going to own it and whether or not you're going to move beyond being a Christian who wants the privileges of Christianity without the responsibilities of Christianity whether you're willing to say, in my weakness and in my frailty and imperfection, I want to step into this and, and understand that, man, I'm called to it. And it starts with that very thing we just talked about, that Jesus claims to have all authority in heaven and on earth. He's saying, I'm the king of everything and everywhere and everyone. And then what's incredible is he connects that authority directly to the calling. He goes, I'm, I've got all authority in heaven and on earth. So therefore, meaning in light of the fact that I have all that authority, you have something to do. And if he's really the king of absolutely everything, you have two options, right? You can deny that he's the king or you can obey. The option you don't have available to you, frankly, is to say, well, he's going to be my buddy and sometimes I'll take his advice and sometimes I won't. Kings don't give advice, right? They give commands. So he says, I've got all authority and so I'm sending you. Now, what's interesting is that in English, the word go kind of stands out to us. It looks like it's the main verb in the sentence. And it's just because this is one example where it's hard to translate into English exactly what's happening in Greek. The word go is a participle. So in English, we express participles by saying going. We add an ing usually. So it's going. So it modifies the rest of the sentence. And the main verb, the imperative, the verb that is actually a command in Greek is make disciples. So what Jesus says is, I've got all authority in heaven and on earth. Make disciples. And going is, a, is modifying the way that he's commanding that. And the key when you think about making disciples, this is, is super important, I think, for us, 
um, especially for those of us who really do want to pursue evangelism, is that Jesus does not say, go make converts. He says, go make disciples. That's a huge difference. A convert, that's, it's incredibly important, of course. People converting to Christianity is, it's the most important thing that can happen in someone's life. The point is just that the job doesn't stop with that. Discipleship means somebody who is following the teachings of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. And so discipleship is a lifelong process. If you're a Christian, you're in the midst of it right now and you will be until the day you die. And it actually begins before you become a Christian. At South Valley, we have a a definition of discipleship. We don't say it that often, but we use it internally. And we define discipleship as leading people to increasingly submit all of life to the Lordship of Jesus. Does that make sense? You're leading people to increasingly submit all of life, so more and more of their life, to Jesus. And so you can see how that starts before somebody even accepts that Jesus is Lord. The process you're leading someone through is to come to see that Jesus is Lord and submit themselves to him. And then that process will continue through and beyond our conversion until the day we die. So understand, you are a disciple, if you believe in Jesus, called to make disciples. And so we want to be people who who look at the younger Christians around us as people who we still need to be discipling, who look to the older Christians around us as people who can be discipling us, and look at people who don't yet know Jesus, not as potential converts, who are trying to get to some threshold or to say a certain prayer or something, and then we're done, but as potential disciples of Jesus who will continue to learn to follow him and to obey him. Now, Jesus says a little more specifically what this means. And it's actually kind of surprising, in my opinion, for most, at least for most Protestants. Here's what he says to do with those disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So the second half of that is pretty straightforward. He's, he's telling you to teach people to obey. So again, sort of like I said a second ago, it's not teach them to believe a certain thing about me. It's teach them, teach them to obey the things that I commanded them to do. And so that's, that's the process of the Christian. That's what we're trying to do every Sunday for ourselves and for everyone in the room, is look at the commands of Jesus and actually begin to grow in our obedience to them. But he includes one specific thing. And chances are, if you're an evangelical Protestant Christian, it's not the thing you would expect him to include. What's the one specific thing he says? Baptize them. Now, our tradition of Christianity, rightfully, was came from a a reaction against a lot of horrible teachings that had gone astray in the church at that time. That's what Protestantism started from. One of those things was was a misunderstanding of baptism. But sort of what's happened, especially in, again, our Protestant evangelical tradition, is we've kind of thrown out the baby with the bathwater a little bit. And so we look now at baptism as something that we don't really take seriously at all. It's maybe something that, yeah, it's like we do that every once in a while and like, New Christians should do that, but it's not, it's not this huge thing. Here's all I'm going to say. That's a lie. Never believe a pastor if they say that. I'm going to say way more than what I'm about to say. <laughs> Jesus includes one thing. Baptize these people. Somebody's a disciple, what do you do? You baptize them and teach them to obey me. Now, every Christian, for all of Christian history until very recently, and I would argue the authors of the New Testament would not have seen baptism as a small side thing that you know, maybe we should talk about every once in a while. They saw it as the proper initiatory act of the Christian. Your initial act of obedience to Jesus is you go and you're baptized. 
And it's not like this big burden on you. It's this incredibly beautiful gift given to you. Paul has this, this beautiful symbolic language where he says, in baptism, you, and actually he says we, because he just assumes that every Christian reading his letters has been baptized. You we're baptized down, we're brought down into the water, into the death of Jesus, and we come up out of the water into the resurrection and new life with Jesus. What a beautiful picture. And so it marks the beginning of your journey of faith, and it marks the moment that you join the church. And so here's the thing, because I'm sure there's already people in the room who are, who are prone to misunderstand me. I am not saying that if you're not baptized, you're not saved. Thief on the cross wasn't baptized, and Jesus tells him he's going to be with him in paradise. You're saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's how it works. But the apostles and the first Christians would have found that, like, that question, well, do you need baptism to be saved? They would have thought that question was almost silly. It's like, no, you're saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus, but what you do is go get baptized. It's what Christians do. Being a disciple means obeying Jesus. Obeying Jesus means getting baptized. And so here's my call to you guys. Um, I, I know this, um, there's people in the room who are disciples of Jesus who haven't been baptized. Some of you, it's because maybe you became a disciple of Jesus like 10 minutes ago. That would be awesome. Some of you, you've been Christians for a really long time, and for whatever reason, you haven't gotten around to it. I want to encourage you. Obey Christ and get baptized. It's that straightforward. Now, here's the good news. We're doing baptisms next Sunday. Isn't that amazing? Just so happens... And so if that's you and you're going, and there might even be, just to be, just to be fair, there might even be a third category of person that's going, I actually am not sure if I should be baptized for whatever reason. You could have a bunch of questions. Come talk to us. Fill out one of our connect cards. Say, I'm interested in talking to a pastor about baptism, or you can come talk to me or talk to Greg. We'd love to walk through that with you. But if you know, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I want to follow Jesus, and I haven't been baptized. We would love to dunk you under the water next Sunday. So please do that. And again, it's not a small thing, you guys. This is, it's part of the complex of events that makes up the beginning of your path as a Christian. You become a Christian, it's just part of what you do. It's assumed by the church and by the New Testament. And so, um, what a beautiful thing to do. Go to Jesus, identify with him in his death and resurrection, and come out as a follower and disciple of Jesus. It's incredibly beautiful. I cry every time. It's going to be awesome. So even if you've already been baptized, don't miss church next Sunday. It's one of the coolest things ever. Susan Mister, who's on the team going to Tanzania, when she found out we were doing baptisms while she's gone, she was like, no, just because she loves to see them so much. And so I, I encourage you, come and see the baptisms. And if you haven't been baptized, this is, this is your time to do it to be obedient, and to take that step of discipleship that is commanded by Christ. And Jesus ends by saying the means by which all of this is possible. He's given this massive commission, go to all the nations and proclaim the gospel. Oh, and by the way, I don't want to neglect this. When he says all nations, he doesn't mean um, like modern political nation states the way we define them in the modern world. There's a relatively small number of those. What he's talking about are peoples. So it's what nerds call ethno-linguistic people groups. Every country, every nation in the modern sense has hundreds if not thousands of peoples within it. Tanzania, where the team is going, for example, has at least 500 people groups within just the country of Tanzania. So um, the reason I bring that up is because if you're thinking of modern nations, then every single nation has been evangelized at this point. But if you're thinking peoples, which is what the authors of the Bible mean, then depending on how you count them, right now, there's somewhere between six and 7,000 peoples who have not heard the gospel in their own language yet. 
Now, that actually represents incredible progress because that's a, that's a small fraction of the peoples in the world. But that's a number that needs to be met. And so the reason I bring that up is because I want to say to you guys, if there's someone in the room today, um, especially if you're a young person or a young couple, but, uh, you know, uh, old people, you're, this is for you as well. You define that however you want. You're telling on yourself if you're offended by that. If there's someone in the room who says, I actually think I might like to dedicate my life to reaching an unreached people group. I might want to dedicate my life to learning a new language, maybe even helping to create a written language for a, a, a people group that doesn't have one so that we can translate the Bible for them. If you're thinking, God might be calling me to that, please email me because I would love to help you do that. We, South Valley, would love to help you do that. And the only reason we can do any of this is because the King of Kings, the King of Heaven and Earth says, I'm with you always to the end. And so we at South Valley, we've tried our best for decades to take this commission really seriously. It's why we say we're gospel-centered and mission-focused. And it's why we do all of these different missions and outreach and compassion efforts, both locally in Gilroy and in Hollister and in all of these countries. Um, and we don't just do it like, like as a church organization, we do it together. One really concrete example of this is a few months ago, you guys might remember, I gave the opportunity for you guys to help us purchase motorcycles for rural pastors in Nigeria. You guys remember that? I told you guys about 1100 bucks per motorcycle, and we'd love to send at least 10. Well, between this campus and the Hollister campus, over $40,000 came in for motorcycles. So yeah, give yourselves a hand for that. It's incredible. And what that means is that, that with our contribution on top of that, there's 50-plus rural Nigerian pastors right now whose life and ministry has been completely transformed because you guys chose to participate in that mission. In a similar way, we have this team going to Tanzania tomorrow in order to go and bless the missionaries there and encourage the Christians who are there. And just know in all of these places, we have efforts everywhere from orphanages to theological seminaries to nursing colleges. Uh, in the Dominican Republic, we're partnering with an organization that fights against child human trafficking. And all of this, it's not arbitrary. It's not random. We're committed to this because we believe that Jesus has called every Christian to participate in the Great Commission. Now, I want to look as we close here at this verse from Paul. And this is one of my favorite verses in the entire New Testament. It's, it's Paul's New Testament edition of the Abrahamic Covenant, if you will. He's very consciously, I believe, using that same language. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Look at this sentence, one of the most incredible sentences in the entire New Testament. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Genesis 1. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Do you see the Abrahamic logic? What's the blessing you receive? God's not counting your trespasses against you because of Christ. Your sins are forgiven. There's no sin between you and God anymore. And Paul says, you don't just sit with that blessing and, and enjoy it until heaven. No, you've been reconciled so that you can go and reconcile. Just like Abraham was blessed so that he could be a blessing. Christians are reconciled to God and given the message of reconciliation and sent out to reconcile. And so you, Christian, you're an ambassador for Jesus Christ. God is making his appeal to the world through you. 
That's what the Great Commission's about. And here's the best news. It's not even remotely hypothetical. It's not like we're sitting here going, man, I wonder what would happen if Christians actually took the Great Commission seriously. Christians do take the Great Commission seriously. And Christians have been taking the Great Commission seriously for 2,000 years. Do you want to know how I know that? Because you're here today. The only reason, if you're a Christian in the room right now, the only reason you are a Christian is because for 2,000 years, Christians have been obeying the Great Commission. Understand that. Otherwise, it just would have died with a few hundred people in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And instead of dying out with a few hundred people in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, what happened is it went from a few hundred people to a few thousand people, to tens of thousands of people, to hundreds of thousands of people, to millions of people and hundreds of millions of people, to the year 2023, when there is somewhere in the ballpark of just over two billion with a B people who believe that Jesus Christ died and resurrected and is ruling and reigning in heaven at the right hand of God the Father right now. Billions of people believe because Christians obey the Great Commission. And so just know, it's not a question of, oh, what if, whoa, hey, easy. I'm getting excited up here. It's not a question of what would happen if Christians obeyed the Great Commission. They are. They are. The only question is, are you going to? And there's a million ways you can do that. God might be calling some of you to sell all your possessions and move halfway around the world. God might be calling some of you to realize that the place you go to work every day has the nations sharing cubicles with you. Some of you look at the children that you raise every single day and recognize you are called to disciple them and raise them up in the knowledge and the fear of the Lord so that the gospel can go forth in and through them. There are countless ways to participate. But just know, if you're a Christian, it's not a question of if you're called to obey the Great Commission. It's a question of how are you called to obey the Great Commission. Amen? And again, just know, you've been reconciled so that you can be a reconciler. And the only reason that you're reconciled today is because a stream of reconcilers stretching 2,000 years back in history obeyed Jesus Christ. So, having said all that, we have an opportunity, according to Paul, with communion, to actually do this. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Now, just skip to the very last sentence for now. We'll read the rest of it in a minute. Paul gives his kind of communion formula, and in the very last sentence he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a way for you and I to proclaim the gospel. In eating the bread and in drinking the cup, we participate in the, in the work of the Great Commission before one another and before the unbeliever in the room. So I invite you to stand with me and we're going to proclaim the death of Christ together. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And as we do that, brothers and sisters, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, it has been an absolute, sincere honor and privilege for us to walk through all 28 chapters of Matthew's gospel with you. And I can think of no better or more fitting way to end this series than the way that Matthew ends his book, which is with the words of Jesus. 
So let's end this together. I invite you to read this with me. Hear in the voices of your brothers and sisters the call of Jesus upon your life to be a disciple who disciples. Let's read this together as we end this book in this series. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. May it be so.